Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Chris Tomlinson on Forget the Alamo. First, I wanted to encourage you to check out booksonpod.com. You can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the biographies and memoirs or film, TV, and performing arts category for episode number 129 with Oliver Stone on Chasing the Light. Hi, this is Oliver Stone. I've just done Books on Pod with Trey Elling about my memoir, Chasing the Light. It was a very interesting set of questions Trey asked, and I think you'll enjoy the show. Hello, readers. Chris Tomlinson is a columnist for the Houston Chronicle and the San Antonio Express News and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Tomlinson Hill. His newest book, co-authored with two other gentlemen, has caught a lot of people's attention, including the leadership here in the state of Texas. It's called Forget the Alamo, the Rise and Fall of an American Myth. Chris, thank you so much for the time today. What was the genesis of this project with you and your two co-authors? Well, you know, I write a column for the Houston Chronicle and the San Antonio Express News, and I uh, also would have breakfast on most Sunday mornings with uh, Jason Stanford and Brian Burrow. Uh, And I was telling them that one of my columns was about the need for Texas to rebrand itself away from the uh, long, tall Anglo cowboy to something different. And I mentioned that one of my lines is that you know, the Battle of the Alamo has more to do with slavery than a fight for liberty. And uh, Brian had never heard this before. And once we started talking, uh, he decided, you know, the three of us should write a book. So what is the narrative about the Alamo that you're disputing? So it's the one that, you know, we learn in second grade in Texas, and then it's reinforced in seventh grade. Uh, You know, a group of Americans... Uh, go to the Alamo to defend against the uh, depredations of a Mexican dictator named Santa Ana, and that even though they were outnumbered, you know, five to one, uh, they gave up their lives so others may live, uh, delaying the advance of the Mexican army so Sam Houston could uh, organize his forces and ultimately defeat Santa Ana at San Jacinto. Uh, very little of that is actually true. So what were, I know you just mentioned slavery, what were the proximate and underlying causes for the Battle of the Alamo on March 6th, 1836? Well, most historians today agree that one of the most significant underlying causes was slavery. Uh, The Mexican uh, people won their independence from Spain in 1821. They were a multicultural society. They actually had a black president for for a while, and they believed in egalitarianism, and they wanted to outlaw slavery. Uh, Stephen F. Austin said, hey, listen, guys, we planned these colonies, uh, this settlement in Texas before all this. Uh, Our economy depends on slavery. And for the next 14 years, um, there was a political battle between Stephen F. Austin and and the Anglos in Texas and the central government in Mexico over slavery. Uh, Eventually, the Anglos uh, stopped threatening to leave and picked up their rifles instead. What was the law of April 6 passed in 1830? So that was the law basically 
outlawing slavery, saying that it was not going to be allowed in on Mexican territory. Um, did, did, the, did, the, did the law end up saying that, though? It seems like the way that I read it is that there were going to be huge cotton tax increases. Imported slavery was now banned, as well as immigration from the U.S., but they never actually went as far as saying slavery was banned, correct? They, were, they said it was going to be phased out. Okay. There was a timeline, uh, I believe it was seven years, that the slaves would have to be released. Uh, in addition to ending the special... Uh, exemptions the Anglos uh, had enjoyed for cotton. They would have to start paying taxes like the rest of Mexican citizens. Um, You know, it was just ending all of these special privileges that the Mexican government had given the Anglos in return for settling in Texas. And and quite frankly, it was about time they gave gave those things up. Uh, they had established their plantations. They were making money hand over fist. Um, and they, you know, it's like we talk about, you know, subsidies for renewable energy. Once renewable energy is cheaper than coal and natural gas, you take away the subsidies. Uh, it was the same thing. But the, uh, the Anglos didn't want to give up anything. Why did they want to increase taxes at that time? I, you know, I, you're, you're catching me out here. I can't tell you about the uh, Mexican government's uh, debate over the reason why they raised taxes. I think uh, part of what was written about in the book is that it had to do with building new military posts and tax offices, specifically in that area that eventually became Texas as well. Now, Texans held two different conventions six months apart in 1832 and 1833, ultimately repealing the law of April 6 and demanding statehood. Few people felt as strongly about statehood as a group called the War Dogs, and this included uh, one of the more famous people from the Alamo, William Travis. What was William Travis like in the years leading up to the Alamo? So William Travis was, you know, painfully young when he came to Texas. I think he was like 24. He was 26 when he died at the battle. Uh, He had fled Alabama. Uh, He was my great-great-grandmother's cousin um, from uh, Konica County. Um, And he was completely dedicated to this idea of making Texas part of the United States. Uh, It was more than just getting independence from Mexico. Uh, And that's why he became uh, an instrumental player in the, the state the the movement towards uh, joining the United States and the and a war dog. Uh, he wanted to fight Mexico for uh, for independence and for secession. Uh, in fact, many historians call it the uh, the Texan War Texas War of Secession rather than a Texas Revolution. Uh, and this was in conflict, of course, to the old timers, the people who had settled um, in the early days of Stephen F. Austin, who had established plantations, had a lot of wealth. And they were often called the Peace Party because they were more interested in lobbying Mexico City for exemptions to the anti-slavery laws and uh, a reduction in tariffs uh, rather than go to war. What was Davy Crockett's backstory leading up to the Alamo, or David, as he preferred to be called? Well, David Crockett was quite the uh, politician. I mean, he had invented a persona for himself coming out of Tennessee uh, as a bit of a, a truth-telling, um, you know, 
fun, loving, uh, hilariously funny uh, character. And, you know, it was very successful for a while. Uh, they made a Broadway play lampooning him at one point. Uh, people wrote uh, unauthorized biographies. And he played it up because he thought that would uh, eventually lead to political success in the United States. It didn't. He lost a race for Congress. And he famously said, you can all go to hell. I'm going to Texas. <laughs> um, it seems to me that at the age of 49, he was looking for a place to reinvent himself, uh, kind of the same way his uh, his compatriot from Tennessee, Sam Houston, was doing. Um, I think he planned to reinvent himself and become a leading politician. And the way he could qualify for land and citizenship in a new Texas was by joining the army. And so at the Alamo, he was just uh, he was a private. He was not a leader, not an officer and um, and just ready to to do what was necessary. Speaking of Sam Houston, why do we have Sam to thank for almost forgetting the Alamo altogether? Well, you know, Sam um, is he really played uh, the Alamo card the best he could. Uh, you know, he didn't like Travis. He considered Travis a a threat, uh, a political rival. Um, and he sent Jim Bowie to San Antonio and said, you know, you really need to just blow up the Alamo, grab all those men, bring them back up here north of the Colorado River, because I need all the troops I can get if we're going to uh, uh, actually secede from Mexico. Uh, Jim Bowie, I think probably for... Uh, nostalgic reasons. He had lived in San Antonio for years. He loved the city. He had friends and neighbors who were Tejanos. He had married into a prominent San Antonio family. He didn't follow the order. Um, then we have Houston ignoring, actually ridiculing Travis for all those over-the-top letters he was write, writing, saying that, you know, he needed help. He needed reinforcements. It, you know, if they didn't make a stand at the Alamo. This was all going to end, you know, terribly. Um, Sam Houston ignored those letters. Uh, he did not send troops, did not send reinforcements. And as soon as he learned that the Alamo had fallen, he started covering up. And you can see that in, the, in his letters from those early days. So Travis was sending these letters because he was concerned. They had received word from Mexico City that Santa Ana had become angry enough to bring troops north of the Guadalupe River and try and uh, basically enforce their will. Why did Santa Ana become angry enough to actually want to bring troops north to essentially try and get Texans under control? Well, you know, Santa Ana had been in Texas uh, just, a, you know, a year earlier. Um, in fact, uh, Stephen F. Austin had proclaimed that Santa Ana was going to be the savior of Texas and the savior of the of the Anglo colonies in Texas. He was he was taken to a feast in Harrisburg where all these Anglo landowners celebrated Santa Ana because his new government was going to give um, the Texans everything um, except, you know, unlimited slavery, which is really what the, the, the primary thing that they were concerned about to keep their plantations going. Um, 
Also, you know, Santa Ana had dissolved uh, the federal constitution. He had already seen rebellions in Zacatecas and elsewhere in Mexico. Um, and so he felt the need to kind of put an end to this. Uh, his political rival, Lorenzo de Zavala, had also gone to Texas, uh, hoping to rally the Anglos to help overthrow Santa Ana, but keep uh, Texas part of Mexico uh, as part of a two-pronged approach to getting rid of the dictator. Um, so, you know, Santa Ana had a lot of reasons to march north. And he marched north far quicker than, than Travis anticipated. Everyone assumed that he would wait for the spring rains to turn the grass green so there would be plenty of forage for his cavalry. So Travis actually ignored all the warnings coming from Tejano scouts saying that, you know, Santa Ana was on his way. And Travis was clearly surprised when he uh, looked out through a telescope and saw the glintering, the glint off the uh, the sabers of an advancing army that he thought was at least two months away. So after Santa Ana and his troops made it to and surrounded the Alamo, Travis did offer a surrender. Why did Santa Ana not accept? Well, Travis uh, wanted to surrender um, conditionally. He wanted to be able to march his troops out of the Alamo and to uh, head towards uh, Gonzalez and Washington on the Brazos to rejoin uh, Sam Houston's men. Uh, undoubtedly, if he'd been allowed to leave, he and his troops would have uh, fought another day against Santa Ana's army. Santa Ana, on the other hand, saw the rebellion as an act of piracy. Uh, even then, under international law, you know, they were behaving like land pirates, basically. They had come into a sovereign country and were and they were attempting to steal the land of that country. They were not backed by another government. They were not uniformed troops. Uh, they were not an army in the formal sense. And so Santa Ana's opinion was you have to uh, you have to surrender unconditionally. And his plan, as he had announced before, was to execute them as pirates. So, you know, he didn't really leave Travis much of a choice. So how many of people who were at the Alamo who ended up fighting, the hundred or so Texans who ended up fighting, and I'm counting Tejanos amongst the hundred as well, how many of them were actually slave owners then? Well, very few. You know, most of the people who were at the Alamo were new to Texas. They had been there only as little as a few months to maybe a year. Uh, most of them were young people who did not, who were there fighting for uh, land rights. They were hoping that by joining the army, they would get some land and they would eventually be able to own slaves someday. Uh, you have to remember, these people were coming from the South uh, in the United States and they brought with them an economic system um, that relied on slavery. Uh, so when people say that, oh, well, most of the defenders of the Alamo didn't own slaves, well, most of the people who fought in the Civil War for the Confederacy didn't own slaves either, but that doesn't mean they weren't fighting for s slavery. I think that's maybe a little bit of a reach. Do you agree that that's taking some liberties, just assuming that everybody who was at the Alamo was eventually trying to own slaves, though? Well, I mean, we don't know. I mean, we do know that they were recruited by um, 
basically through the the whole revolution was financed by cotton traders in New Orleans. Uh, this was not something as simple as an indigenous spontaneous uprising. Um, you know, there were flyers sent throughout uh, the South in the United States recruiting these people to come. Uh, the New Orleans Grays uh, were a unit that came from New Orleans. There were units that came from Mobile, Alabama. And there was certainly a promise that, you know, you would get good cotton growing land if you came and fought alongside the Texian army. So, you know, I, I think there is an argument to be made that these people were looking to extend, um, you know, the southern part of the United States to Texas. And I think almost certainly they expected Texas to be a slave state if it became part of the United States. And of course, it eventually did. Considering the Mexican army outnumbered those at the Alamo 15 to 1 with 1,500 troops to about 100 Texans, did the Texans put up a good fight? You know, there are many different opinions about this. And the truth is, the only reliable accounts that we have are the Mexican army accounts. Uh, you know, the others come from Susanna Dickinson, uh, the wife of a Texian officer who was hiding in the chapel, and uh, William Travis's uh, enslaved uh, man, Joe, who uh, basically got off one shotgun shot before his, uh, his enslaver was shot in the head uh, in the opening moments of the battle, and then he also retreated into the chapel. Um, we do know that the Texian guards were asleep and missed, uh, the advance of the Mexican troops. Uh, we also know that the Mexican troops ladders fell apart as soon as, uh, the Mexican soldiers began climbing them to get over the wall. And from the Mexican army accounts, uh, most of the Mexican troops who died were killed by friendly fire because they got massed up against the walls and there was, um, you know, a lot of poor maneuvering on behalf of the Mexican troops. Uh, the whole battle lasted about 45 minutes and we know a third to half of the uh, Anglo defenders uh, made a run for it in, the, uh, in those final minutes, trying to get out into open land and were hunted down by uh, Mexican cavalry and killed in the fields. So I don't know how to characterize, did they put up a good fight? Um, it's, it's, it's a complicated picture, uh, but we do know there was fierce fighting inside the long barrack and uh, that that was a bit of a mess. So again, I think one of the hardest things about the Alamo story is admitting what you don't know and what we cannot know for sure. And that's one of the points we try to make. And if you accept that, that there are things about the battle that we just don't know and cannot know, then you realize that a lot of the myths are based on people's imaginations, not facts. Do you have any idea of how Davy Crockett might have met his maker? Well, we know from the very earliest newspaper accounts uh, that he survived and was captured and executed. Then a, the whole mythology of him fighting to the death 
with swinging old Betsy over his head, that began to emerge only about 50, 60 years later. And then, of course, became um, kind of like the standard part of the mythology when Walt Disney portrayed uh, Crockett dying in battle um, in the TV series. And, of course, John Wayne playing Davy Crockett uh, portrayed Crockett going down fighting. Uh, according to Mexican officers' documents, uh, Crockett was captured alive. He tried to pass himself off as a naturalist who just kind of got caught up in the Alamo, not realizing what he was getting into, and that Santa Ana ordered his uh, men to execute him on the spot. Surprisingly, there was not a celebration for the 50th anniversary of the Battle for the Alamo. When and why did Texans begin to commemorate the Alamo in such grand fashion? Well, you know, 1886 is an interesting time because you have the formation of these heritage societies and these remembrance organizations. Uh, A lot of families had lost their, their fathers, brothers, uncles, sons in the Civil War. And as the memory, as memory was beginning to fade on the Civil War, uh, people wanted to commemorate their dead. And in Texas, people decided they also needed to commemorate the Texas Revolution and their dead from those battles. Uh, So you have the creation of the Daughters of the Republic of Texas, and you have women like Adina de Zavala, the granddaughter of uh, Lorenzo de Zavala, the first vice president of the Republic, Uh, recruiting Clara Driscoll, one of the wealthiest women in Texas at the time and the uh, granddaughter of veterans of the Battle of San Jacinto. And these two women set about remembering the Alamo and they embraced the mythology. Uh, They embraced a white supremacist myth uh, that basically minimized the role of Tejanos and uh, and a lot of what we what we believe today and a lot of what became uh, part of the Disney and John Wayne uh, mythology originates with them. Not only did Walt Disney and John Wayne help to perpetuate the Alamo's narrative and popular culture, but so did Lyndon Baines Johnson. What role did LBJ play in the Alamo's legacy with something called Alamo syndrome? <laughs> so, um, so LBJ... Uh, you know, just kept, kept, you know, like every good Texan, uh, began to spin his uh, story bigger and bigger and bigger over the years. Um, his grandfather was a friend of Clara Driscoll's and Adina Zavala's and was involved in uh, the preservation of the Alamo. He passed the bill uh, in the Texas legislature that gave uh, custodianship over the Alamo to the uh, Daughters of the Republic of Texas. Uh, and Samuel Lee Johnson's father had been at the Battle of San Jacinto. Um, LBJ, of course, you know, he conflates these things. And what starts out is my grandfather saved the Alamo, came to my great grandfather died at the Alamo. <laughs> and um, he was so obsessed with this story. He used it as a parable for Vietnam um, that it just became more and more exaggerated. You know, and I have my own case of, uh, of Alamo syndrome. Uh, when I was a little kid, my uh, grandfather told me that one of our ancestors died in the Alamo. And sure enough, if you go to the state capitol at the monument to the Alamo defenders, 
uh, Tomlinson is is T O M L I N S O and is in, inscribed on the monument. Um, and I guess that's where my grandfather got it. Uh, of course, it wasn't really a Tomlinson; it was a typo. Uh, the man who died was Tomlinson T U M L I N S O N, and my family didn't come to Texas till 1849 and had nothing to do with the Alamo. But I didn't know any better probably until I was like 28, 30 years old. Texas is one of the few states that devotes not just one, but two years to teaching its students about its history. How have teachers taken it upon themselves to tweak the Alamo narrative over the past decade? Well, you know, that's one of the most fascinating things uh, that we found with this book is, you know, talking to school teachers about the impact the Alamo mythology has on their students and how that's changed as the demography uh, of Texas has changed. Uh, I, we spoke to, um, to, to people who said that they, they have to be very careful now to make sure that uh, they don't portray the, the Mexicans as evil, dastardly uh, villains in Texas history class when more than 60, 70 percent of the class is filled with Mexican-American children. We had school teachers talk about how they won't even take their kids to the Alamo anymore because they were tired of the white kids beating up on the Mexican kids as soon as they got back on the bus. That has to be a little bit of an overstatement, right? I, you know, I, we had, that's what the teachers told us. Okay. I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna contradict the middle school teachers that we spoke to or that we, you know, we talked to um, Hispanics in San Antonio, including the uh, state rep whose district includes the Alamo, Diego Bernal, talks about how he learned uh, that he was different when they taught this story of the Alamo and that the white kids started treating him differently after that lesson. And I think this is one of the most important things and also the most most difficult lesson for Anglo-Texans to understand is that when you have a myth that creates these Uh, cartoonish ideas of who the good guys and bad guys are, uh, and then you reject and won't even consider uh, alternative histories, uh, alternative versions of the same story told from a different perspective, you're not only perpetuating a lie, you're also oppressing uh, an entire community, an entire culture. And we've heard repeatedly from the Tejanos in San Antonio how this has uh, made them uncomfortable, how it's how it's hurt them, and and how they are desperate for a more complete story to be told. A hotly debated item with Texas history curriculum in 2018 was whether to call those who were at the Alamo heroic. What does the word heroic mean to you, Chris? Well. Let me qualify this by saying that I am a veteran. I spent seven years on active duty in the United States Army. I spent 14 years of my life as a war correspondent. I've covered nine wars in all those years, all over Africa and the Middle East, to include Afghanistan and two years in Iraq. I have seen a lot (laughs) of combat, and I've seen a lot of cowardice, and I've seen a lot of heroism. And one of the things that I've learned is that people can do a heroic act, 
but that does not make them a hero. Uh, a person can do a cowardly act, but that doesn't make them a coward. People should not and cannot be defined by one decision in one moment of a lifetime. And so I'm not a big fan of calling people heroes. I would much rather say someone did something heroic. Some, someone did something amazing. But, you know, that doesn't mean that their whole life um, they were saints. And that, you know, my best analogy is that I met a soldier in Iraq who saved a dozen lives, you know, ripped just went above and beyond while under fire to save his uh, his comrades in arms under fire. And you know what? He 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 beat his wife. He had a DUI. His personal life was a mess. Uh, he didn't pay child support. Uh, he would he lost rank because of these things. But that didn't mean that he wasn't capable of heroism. And so do we call someone like that a hero? I don't know. But I think uh, we'd be far better off if we just said, hey, you did something heroic and, 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 not, and not put a mantle on someone that they are going to have to carry with them for the rest of their lives. So thinking about everything that I learned in this book, because even though you, you and I are having a conversation right now, and I don't necessarily agree with everything, there were absolutely things that I took from this book, including the slavery element, which I believe, I mean, it's been a long time now since I had my Texas history, but that was almost certainly downplayed back in the 1980s when I was taking Texas history. Slavery is a part of it. Coming and taking land, the land piracy that Santa Ana brutally killed pretty much everybody at the Alamo because he looked at them as land pirates and would not allow them to just go ahead and wave the white flag and move on to the next battle. As well as some doltish leaders who were acting for the sake of everybody else that they were around in and around the Alamo in San Antonio, who weren't slave owners, who were just there trying to create a better life for themselves, created this really heinous situation that boiled to a head that led to an outright slaughter. So I say all of that by asking you a final question, Chris. How do you think the Alamo should be taught in schools? What narrative do you think should be told? So I think, I think the narrative is, is pretty compelling, if we're just honest about it. You know, these people were of their era. I'm not condemning these people for wanting to defend the economic system that sustained them. These people honestly believed that Anglos were a superior form of human being. They sincerely believed that they were superior to black people and to brown people. And they made decisions based on those beliefs. And acting on those beliefs, they did some wild, crazy, and some admirable things. But, you know, when we look back, we have to decide how we honor them is a reflection on who we are today. And so let's just tell the whole story and talk about how this is how we came to have Texas. The Texas that we have today is a result of these things. And some of them were cowardly and some of them were heroic and some of them would be completely unacceptable and be considered evil today. 
We should also keep in mind that there were young Mexican men who were fighting for their country against invaders. There were several officers who wrote that they wanted to end slavery in Texas by force if that's what it took. But slavery had not been banned by law, though. Actually, indentured servitude was allowed, but but slavery was being was being written out. You know, you read Juan Almonte, who was Santana's chief of staff, and he says, you know, we we were going to go end slavery in Texas. Uh, you read the letter that uh, Santa Ana wrote to the Mexican government before crossing the Rio Grande, and he said his intent was to free the slaves in Texas. So at that point, don't you take what's being written there with a grain of salt? Because there were no laws on the book. The law was that slavery is something that could no longer be imported, and immigration from the U.S. was also banned at that point, but they had not banned slavery just yet in Texas. Well, and they, so while I, they, I, you they know, may be I'm trying gonna, to wheel— I'm going to go back and look. My understanding was that there was an indentured servitude law, and they were literally forcing their— slaves to sign documents committing themselves to indentured servitude for a life, which I think is interesting twist on getting around the ban on slavery passed by the parliament. I would also point out that by this point, Santa Ana had, sub- had suspended the constitution. So really there, there were no laws, <laughs> no federal Mexican laws. And that was one of the reasons why People were fighting, uh, not only in Texas, but all across Mexico. Yet, if you read the work of Almonte, you read his 1834 analysis of Mexico, and you read about his friendship and partnership with abolitionists in Washington, D.C., Juan Almonte imagined a day in which they would settle freed blacks in Mexico instead of Anglos. So I don't doubt Almonte's sincerity at all. He was uh, Santa Ana's chief of staff. If only they were so kind to the Maya at that time, too. You know, we can go back and forth (laughs) all day. Uh, And that's, to me, the most interesting thing about the Alamo story and the story of the Texas Revolution Mm -hmm. is that it is complex. There are many different arguments to be had. We have set one forward. And I don't expect everyone to agree with me. I don't expect you to agree with me. But I feel like I have made a, a case for the argument that I make. And, I, and by no means do I think my book's going to end this argument. And Chris, I just want you to know, I truly believe after reading this book that slavery is part of why things went down the way that they did. But I think it's a piece of the puzzle. I think there are different pieces that come together, several bigger pieces than others, and The good guys were also bad guys at times, and the bad guys, well, they were actually good guys at times as well. Thus is life, though, right? None of us are perfect, and it is about pointing out the most heinous examples of things to try and incite actual change in modern times. And the bottom line for me, on top of just the very ignorant and stupid state of mind that existed in that time, especially amongst white people with regards to slavery— and that was certainly the case in the South as well, is you had these brash leaders who were looking to prove something to one another and essentially putting the citizens who they were quote-unquote in charge of in harm's way in the process. And that's absolutely what happened at the Alamo. Travis and Bowie were in a bit of a struggle. They were both 
Very questionable figures coming into things. Unfortunately, Stephen F. Austin tried to be the level head to serve as a sort of dialogue between Mexico City and what was happening in Texas. He failed miserably, ends up getting jailed for part of that time. And unfortunately, Santa Ana was finally fed up with Texas calls to secede from Mexico on top of them ignoring the other things, including slavery, including paying those higher taxes. So he went north to make an example and get Texas back under his control. And what better place to do that at than the Alamo, where the numbers were extremely skewed, 1,500 to 100. And despite the fact that they wanted to wave the white flag, he had to make an example there. And he did. And unfortunately for Santa Ana and the Mexican troops at that time, that served as a rallying cry for Sam Houston, who certainly took liberties and went histrionic with his version of the events in inspiring those who were a part of his army to ultimately come up with a really good strategy to essentially trap the Mexican army and win Texas. I think we can debate a lot of the things that that you just said. I know that Santa Ana didn't know what he was going to find at the Alamo, and he thought very little of the battle. He thought it was completely insignificant. It was certainly less significant than any of the battles that he fought in Zacatecas, which took place before he came to Texas. If he thought it was so insignificant, though, why would he kill everybody? Well, because that was his order. He had announced that was his intent, was to treat all of the Anglos as pirates before he even crossed the Rio Grande. Tejanos were killed too, though, correct? And children were killed too. Well, yes, some were, but also Santa Ana offered to free Joe and the women and children who survived the battle, the Tejano women and children who survived the battle, were given blankets and pesos, aid in resettling after the battle. So, When we look back at history, we have to remember that their lives were just as complicated as our own. I am full of contradictions. I'm sure you are, too. Mm -hmm. And I've got 24 hours in a day, but we tend to only remember a few precise moments in the lives of these historical figures. Sam Houston describes being basically forced into the Battle of San Jacinto by his own men because they didn't want to wait till morning, which would have been the the normal thing to do. And by his own men coercing him into attacking in mid-afternoon, he got the surprise on Santa Ana's army, which by that point was divided up in three different areas. Sam Houston was fighting a much smaller contingent of troops than what the, uh, the, tr- the men at the Alamo faced. But, you know, My joke with Brian when he suggested we write a book is that I was like, yeah, we've already got 2,000 books about the Alamo. Who on earth wants another book about the Alamo? (laughs) And yet we still want to talk about it. We still want to talk about these things. Stephen Harrigan is a friend of ours. He loves William Travis. He just thinks William Travis is really cool. And he is still angry with us for the way we uh, we kind of vilified Travis in the book. I have friends who love James Fannin, and they're angry with me about how we portray Fannin. It's mythology. It's stories that we all love. And yes, we take a new and fresh look at it, because I frankly believe that we take from history the stories we need today. 
And the stories we need from the Texas Revolution and the Battle of the Alamo are different today than they were in 1960 when John Wayne made his movie. And as such, and every historian will tell you this, is every 20 years we look back on the same things in a slightly different way and come up with a slightly different explanation. And we're just part of that process. It was a great effort by the three of you. And look, I have this conversation, this debate with you because I know I can, because I know that you're somebody who is confident enough in his own knowledge base to do so. And look, you just told Texans that Santa Claus wasn't real. Whether Texans choose to believe it all the way or whether they choose to believe a version, that's a ballsy thing, man. I've got some ideas for your next book to further just kill your relationship with people in this state. Maybe something along the lines of uh, brisket, overrated in the barbecue world. Maybe you go, the uh, the Texas flag was actually a ripoff of another state's flag and we should get rid of it altogether. And you should also uh, write either an article or book on why it would be valuable to ban pickup trucks in the state, too. And just let me also say for a moment, it's only a specific segment of Texas. I've been gratified by the letters I've received and the support I continue to receive, not only from historians you know, like H.W. Brands, Alan Graybill at SMU, who wrote the Wall Street Journal Review, Andres Tijerina, one of the top experts on this topic on the Alamo, who's here in Austin, but from people with last names that end in vowels, people who are not Anglo-Saxon, who feel like we're finally telling a story that they were taught since they were on their grandparents' knee. So, sure, Yeah, some people are going to be really uh, angry, but they tend to be only one particular part of the population, and and, and I'll live with that. That includes some of your friends, though. He is Chris Tomlinson, a columnist for the Houston Chronicle and the San Antonio Express News, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Tomlinson Hill. His newest book, co-authored with two other gentlemen, has certainly caught some people's attention. It's called Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth. Chris, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. It is interesting, if nothing else, and I think it should hopefully help to reform the narrative of what the Alamo is all about. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Join me next time when I speak with former Kansas Congressman and Secretary of Agriculture Dan Glickman about laughing at myself, my education in Congress, on the farm, and at the movies. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and follow for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day. Good day.